The Song of Solomon. Turn in the Word of God. Song of Solomon. Chapter 6 this morning. Let me just say it's good to see some that we haven't seen in a few weeks that have been unwell. Thankful the Lord has spared you and kept you. There are many others that still remain unwell at this time. And it is a sobering season. Uh, Whatever we think of what's going on, a sobering time. So we must be much in prayer and looking to the Lord to sustain us and His people in a right spirit, not getting losing sight of the purpose for which we are here, to glorify Him, to live for His praise, and to stay focused on the main thing, and let the main thing be the main thing. And it isn't all the unrest and the uncertainty that's happening either nationally, nationally or internationally. It is Christ and His kingdom. So may we maintain that centrality. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, we will read from verse 11, just the last few verses here. We've been going through this every time we come to the Lord's table, using it as an opportunity to meditate on aspects of our union with Christ. And we make no apology for taking our interpretation that way, that this is largely in its redemptive significance in the entire canon of Scripture, uh, a focus upon the intimate relationship between Christ and His people, whatever else may be said about the passage. And we're coming today to chapter 6, verse 11. So let's hear the word of the Lord, and may God enlighten our minds to His truth. I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. Wherever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Amandadab. Return, return, O Shalomite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. What will you see in the Shalomite? As it were, the company of two armies. Amen. May God, as we've already expressed, give us the light we need in His Word this morning. Let's pray. Let's look to Him for help before we come to the Lord's table, that He may minister to us by His Word. Father, we are always in need of help when we look to Thy Word, and we pray Thou wilt help us to feel it. We have thy word telling us very plainly that these things are spiritually discerned. Therefore, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Ghost in every life. May he minister to me as the preacher, to those that hear. May there be ears to hear. We pray we would take the exhortation of Christ honestly and sincerely to take heed how we hear and receive the engrafted word with meekness engrafted word that is able to save our souls. Lord Jesus, stand amidst thy people. There are burdens, sorrows, trials, spiritual difficulties, maybe conflict, doctrinal and otherwise in the mind, that need to be ironed out and helped by thy word. So lead us in. We confess our wickedness and 
powerlessness. And we take the promised Holy Ghost to help us now. For Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we meander through the Song of Solomon, we come after, I don't know, however long it has been since we have been coming to this passage every time or almost every time there's communion, we have approached the sixth chapter from verse 11 through to the end of the chapter. And as is often the case, there's debate about what's going on here, what's the significance, what is the meaning. There are certain passages where there is more clarity for sure, but you will discover that there is much debate even when you come to uh, who actually is speaking, and that's one such occasion here. There's much debate about who is speaking from verse 11 and following. Who is it that is going down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded? Who is it that says, wherever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Ami Nadib? Who's speaking here? What is going on? Many respected men view this as the continuing remarks of the bridegroom. He has been speaking prior to this. He is the one that expressed, for example, verse 10, who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. So we've established that's the bridegroom. And for many then, he continues to speak. He went down into the garden and so on and so forth. And for others, of course, it is someone else. We do know that our Lord uh, speaks of visiting the garden, chapter 5, verse 1, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse, as well as chapter 6, verse 2, my beloved has gone into his garden, this is her observation of him, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, and to gather lilies. So him going to the garden is not a new thing. And so it could be the Lord going to the garden here in verse 11, and every time we've looked at that, we have considered it in the sense that he is going to review the fruit of his people. He is reviewing their lives. He is viewing that which is being produced by them, that which they are developing in. It is a theme that we have considered on a number of occasions. And it's a wonderful encouragement. Christ takes delight in his people. He actually has an interest in them to the point that he looks at the life, he considers the growth, he sends His Spirit to aid in that growth and maturity, and He is constantly reviewing and aiding and taking delight in His people as they become more like Him. And so we've, we've thought about that. Such is our union with Christ. He has this interest, an interest in you, Christian, an interest in your growth. And so He does send the Spirit, and He does help and aid as we endeavor to die more and more unto sin and live unto righteousness. Psalm 149 verse 4 tells us, the Lord taketh pleasure in His people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. That is, He will adorn them with salvation. They will be clothed upon with salvation. Spurgeon preached a message on verse 12 of this chapter of Song of Solomon, and I can commend it to you. Uh, he at the beginning, he marks out the, the struggle here of what's going on. He says, to whom does this text refer? Probably those of us who would never raise a doubt about the song being a dialogue between Christ and the spouse, a matter we have no intention to canvas just now as we take it for granted. 
might find no small difficulty in determining to which of the two sacred personages this speech belongs, whether it was to Solomon or to the Shulamite. And so the preacher presents both sides, and he gives credence to both, almost as if either is acceptable, but then for his purposes of that particular sermon, he takes it as the language of the bride. Well, that's how I see it as well. Verse 11, I see as the language of the bride. It seems to be framed as a soliloquy, something uh, that had happened. She is kind of talking to herself, speaking aloud of this event, and so she shares these thoughts aloud of something that had happened, namely of her visit to the garden. And it seems in that sense, it seems slightly distinct from Christ's visit to the garden where she is pondering in her mind of some past event and musing on what occurred in that case. And so in, in saying that to you, I just warn you, I am deviating from the materials I use often in my preparations, such as the old writings of James Durham, John Gill, Matthew Henry, and no doubt others. But I think that's who's speaking. I think it is the bride that speaks here in verse 11 which then means everything that I read concerning those men that I often go to has no help to me whatsoever. And their Christological, the central focus on Christ and what's going on and the application of the gospel and their musings on that to help me as I, I prepare every time and I'm seeing what they see and, and trying to build upon that, well, it offered no help whatsoever. Again, you have this, this sense of him looking at the, 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 the growth of his people and the fruits that they produce. And when you flip it, when it becomes the bride, when it becomes the church that speaks, then that changes everything. So what is going on? And I've entitled my message this, Christ is better than morbid introspection. Christ is better than morbid introspection. And these are not easy verses, even however clear you may be on, on the dialogue and who is speaking. And there's so much debate on these, so there may be a sense in which the preacher will allow you take it with a pinch of salt in one sense. I'm not being as dogmatic as I may normally endeavor to be, but I will endeavor to be as clear as possible and as helpful to you as we come to the Lord's table. Note with me, first of all, the examination. The examination. I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. And I want you to note here two things in this examination. First, this examination is commonly done to ourselves in the early stages of grace. This examination is commonly done to ourselves in the early stages of grace. If she is speaking, and she is musing upon going to the garden, which is unanimously understood to be the place where the Lord is producing the fruit of His people. And we have here the Lord's people, we have the church, we have the Christian looking inwardly for those things that Christ looks upon and takes consideration of as we've seen in previous times. But she is looking. She is looking for the fruit. She is considering what is there or whether there's anything there. And you can see from the context that she is looking for not just the fruits of the valley, but to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. And the sense here is not just looking for fruit, but it's the early stages of the fruit, isn't it? It's seeing whether the vine is beginning to produce, whether the pomegranates are beginning to bud. Is there evidence? 
Is there any evidence of life? And so I put it to you here that what we have laid out is, is this Christian, the experience of the believer examining the fruit of their own life, asking themselves whether the vine is flourishing, whether the pomegranates are budding. It is therefore language of inquiry, isn't it? You can see that. There's a sense of going to the garden and to, to inquire whether the vine flourished, whether the pomegranates are budding. And as I've said to you already, the timing of it seems to be at the early stages when you're first indicating whether or not there is life. Now, before I go any further, I want to say that there is a place for examination in the believer's life. And it is appropriate to think about that even in light of the Lord's table, because one of the statements we have in relation to examining ourselves comes in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, where we have the Lord's table laid out and the language that we refer to every time we sit at the Lord's table. And you will know that there's warning given in that passage, warning of those that are not observing the Lord's table in the right manner. And one of the exhortations that the Apostle Paul lays out there in that chapter is found in verse 31, where he says, "'For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged.'" And what he is endeavoring to, to get into the minds of each Christian is this sense of when you come to the Lord's table, if you take a mentality of, of, of repentance, a framework of repentance, that you're coming knowing that you're not perfect. You're judging yourself. Now, now let, let me just lay out that that, that, is, that is a right and proper approach to the Lord's table. There has to be an entrance to the Lord's table of repentance as well as faith. There's the recognition that I have no worth to be here. I have no right to be feeding on Christ. Why me and not another? What have I done to earn this? And so from the outset, every last one of us that claim the name of Christ come to the table today with a, a, a mentality of repentance. Repentance is appropriate. those that Paul was addressing in Corinth, they were failing to come with repentance. They were failing to come in the right approach. There were certain practical outworkings of that as well, but, but this then is the point that he makes. If we would judge ourselves, if we would rightly discern ourselves, we should not be judged. That is to say, we will not have then the disciplinary hand of God upon us because that's what happened. There was many sick and others that were sleeping. They had been taken because, not because they, they were imperfect merely. Everyone who participates at the Lord's table is imperfect. That's not, that's not the point. The point is there was no repentance in their hearts. There was no, they, were, they were setting themselves at different levels in relation to the rest of the congregation there was a false perspective, therefore, in their approach to the Lord's table, and it came because they would not rightly judge themselves, discern themselves to be the sinners that they are by nature and by practice. We come to the table, we make no apology of it. We come, every one of us, as sinners to this table. We come because we are sinners, and we come as sinners. 
And we come to feast on that which we can't produce ourselves. That is Christ who is the source of our life. And we need Him. So we judge ourselves in the right way. But we are to avoid morbid introspection. Examination that leads to repentance, that leads to joyful appreciation of the gospel, ought to be a free-flowing movement of grace. At the same event, at the same time, in your heart there would be the marriage of the need for repentance from your sin and joyful appreciation of Christ and the laying hold by faith and all that is put before you in the Son of God. So while there's this sense I'm not worthy, at the same time there's this marriage of the fact that Christ has done the work, Christ has satisfied the law, Christ has reconciled us to God, I'm in union with the perfect Son of God, and there's this swelling up of joy, of joyful appreciation in the same event where you're lamenting your own sin. And so I say, examination... That is, a proper conception of ourselves as sinners is right, and it leads to repentance that leads to joyful appreciation of the gospel. This is what I need. I'm a sinner, and this is what I need, and it's put before me. It's freely offered. I'm not trying to impress God. I'm not trying to earn what He puts before me. So all of this, as I say, is like a free-flowing movement of grace in the heart. And if you stall, before you reach the cross, you're in danger of falling into a works-driven salvation. If you stall at the judgment, at the discernment, at the awareness that you're a sinner, if you stall there, and then imagine that there's something you must do before you can take Christ or receive to yourself the benefits of Christ. You're entering into a works frame of mind. As I say, this is especially important when we come to the Lord's table, but it is true of every day of our lives. You get up in the morning, you're the same sinner that you were when you went to bed. So there's a, there's a humble contrition, recognition of your sinfulness every day. Forgive us our debts is the prayer Christ tells us to pray. Forgive us. But then we appropriate by faith. We take to ourselves by faith Christ. I am His and He is mine. His banner over me is not condemnation, it is love. But the text is particular to those early stages. And I, and I, and I say this then that the second point I want us to consider is that this examination is commonly done by others 
in the early stages of grace. It's done to ourselves in the early stages of grace. And I think that's worthy to point out. I think that the, the tendency is that when we begin as Christians, we, we almost need to learn, learn how to both repent and by faith lean into Christ. And if there's ever a point in the Christian life where there's a danger of a morbid introspection is usually in the early years of the Christian life. And those early years of the Christian life are very open to a form of mysticism. It's very common for Christians to get overly mystical about the Christian life in a way that is unhealthy. And there are writers that will put before you all sorts of things, and, and what, what it boils down to often is return to a kind of works-based favor before God. And you must be very careful. You must be exceedingly careful in the early stages. When I say early stages, obviously we mean children. We obviously also would mean those who are new believers, who haven't been saved a long time, or maybe have never really grown, haven't sat under substantial teaching, and therefore really there hasn't been a lot of doctrinal spiritual growth in their lives. And then they're open. They're open to so, some kind of presentation of the Christian life that leads them to look more inward than upward. And we must be careful with that. I think those of you who have been here long enough, while you're not immune to this, I trust have come sufficiently along the way to realize I need to get my eyes on Christ again. I need to look to Him. My sufficiency is all of Him. But I say also this examination is commonly done by others in the early stages of grace. In verse 13, there, within the context here, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. Many believe this to be the cry of, of, of a third party, maybe the daughters of Jerusalem, maybe another party, the watchman that we've heard about and read of already in this book, whatever it is, some third party, and they're, they're calling for the Shulamite to return, that they may look upon them. They want to observe. This outside party wants to look at what's going on. And if those that take this position are correct, then you, you, you have this, this third party desire to examine the life of the believer. Now, the world wants to look at the life of the believer. Not because they have any particular interest in your life. Usually it is just to see where you fall. That's what they're interested in. They want to hear you use the language that they use. They want to see you do what they do. They want to lure you, tempt you, and get you to be interested in what they are interested in. The beginning of Proverbs marks this out, this clear language of Solomon speaking to his son, warning him of those that try to get them to participate in the same things that they're interested in doing, sinful things, wicked things. And none of us need to be told that the world is interested in that. But when you take a stand, when you distinguish yourself as a believer, when you, when you say, look, I'm, just, I'm not interested or... 
I'm not going to talk about that issue, or I don't want to hear that language, or whatever. And you mark yourself out as different, then they will watch, because they will interpret you simply wanting to abstain from these things as you setting yourself apart as being different. And since you're different, then you're distinguished. And since you're distinguished, then they want to to see that in the negative light. Why can't you join with us? Are you more, you think you're better than us? That's where they tend to lean. And so they want to examine. And to that early Christian, that new Christian, oh, oh we, we've seen it, haven't we? Maybe, we? maybe we were there. Maybe some of us were there. And we were given to sin and given to the worldly ways and worldly language. And there we were, carried, we were part of what everyone else was doing. And in that same environment, the Lord saved us. And one day you come in and this conversation develops where you have to explain that you're saved, you're now a Christian. Whatever language you use to express that, you have to tell your previous companions, your associates in sin, you have to tell them now you're a Christian. And some of them may not take too kindly to it, and they will, they will be looking for your falls. Now, now you're just a new believer, <laughs> and you barely know up from down when it comes to biblical truth. And if you're anything like me, you're extreme ignorance when it comes to basic Bible knowledge. You know, failing memories are a flaw in our fall. We're not meant to forget as often as we do. But there are times, certainly, where a failing memory can be a blessing. God has turned it for good. And I think back of a 19-year-old, full of zeal and folly, living the Christian life, in my place of work, and I'm thinking, I don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember much about the interactions and the failures and my wrong assumptions and the things that I would have said that maybe I shouldn't have said and did that I shouldn't have done and all the rest of it. And maybe there were things, there were times when the world could look on and say, well, he says he's a Christian, but I, I heard him say or I saw him do And there are certain ones I do remember, certain things that do come to mind. And the world loves to see them. And they, they, they will see it, they will. And they'll criticize. But you know, the same spirit can also be true in the church. The church can also want to look upon the kind of critical spirit. This is a critical spirit that often is found among the Lord's people. It's, it's critical. 
Now, we, we are to be, we are to have a certain amount of healthy criticism. We are to be able to judge, right? We are meant to be able to discern right from wrong, fruit-bearing from non-fruit-bearing. This is what our Lord teaches us. But at the same time, we're to love us to cover a multitude of sin. And often we can feel in a right balance, a right discernment, and especially in the early seasons of grace, we can expect too much from those that know the Lord. Parents need to keep this in mind. Your child has professed faith in Christ, and you're looking for grace, but you need to be careful about what you're looking for, because if you looked hard enough at yourself, you might find deficiency in that very thing in your own life, and you're 30 years ahead of them. So you need to be sensitive. What, how, what are we looking for? Are we seeing progress? If we're seeing progress, praise the Lord, because you're not going to see perfection. And that goes to everything. That goes for everything. doesn't matter what you're dealing with. Progress, not perfection. Counseling, difficult issues. I always tell myself and tell those I'm talking to, marriage counseling, the same thing. Progress, not perfection. If you're looking for the latter, you lose before you start. But it's dangerous. It's dangerous for us to, to look upon in those early stages of grace, and not give space for growth. And then our language or our cross eye can be discouraging. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to be guilty of this. Christians have enough trouble, especially in the early seasons, of looking to themselves and and sobbing over whether the vine has flourished or the pomegranate's budded. Some of you have parented children who have gone through this. Mom, Dad, if I'm a Christian, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I say the things that I say? The conflict in the mind of a child, knowing what the Christian life ought to be and yet what they are. If we set the bar at a certain standard, And if we don't lead them to the foot of the cross and to the grace that's found in Christ, we'll either so discourage them that they walk away altogether, or we will make them little Pharisees who have been taught to obey externally and they hit all the targets and they're so much better than their siblings and they're comparing themselves like the elder brother And yet they're on the way to hell. So, this is the examination. Secondly, the realization. The realization. As I say, much of the language here is awkward. In verse 12, it's no different. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadab. What's going on here? Well, let's break it down a little bit to try and get some understanding. Aminadab is a transliteration of the Hebrew. It's just basically putting before you in English what's there in Hebrew. It's not interpreting. It's not translating, really. It's just a transliteration. 
And as a compound word, you can see that, Ami, Nadib, and you then try to figure out, well, what, what's going on here? Now, what we would normally do is, well, is this found anywhere else? Is this word found anywhere else? And we realize, no, it's not. The two compound words, however, are, and we know what those words mean. Ami just means, uh, gives this sense of, of, of my people. So speaking about people, my people, and Nadib is inclined or willing. So it has this sense of my people are willing or my willing people. So does that clear things up? Well, not exactly, but we have some understanding a little bit at least of what that means. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of a willing people, we might say. Well, what do we know about a willing people? What do we know about a people that are willing? Does the Scripture talk about a people that are willing? Yes, it does. It talks about the church being a willing people. So if, if we take that idea and we then understand essentially that Aminadib is, is basically a way of saying, here, here's the church, here's the Lord's people, maybe that gives a little bit more clarity. Here's the scene. She goes down to the garden. She's examining whether the vine flourishes, whether the pomegranates are budding. And it appears... Though it's awkward in the translation, it appears that she has this realization. Something comes upon her where her soul is made like the chariots of a willing people. Now the question is, is this something that happens in the scene or is this something she remembers in the scene? If it's something that happens in the scene, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea whatsoever. No clue. And there I've read as widely as I can within the space of a week to try and understand. But if she's remembering something, if the realization, and, and this is what the sense of what most are, are interpreting this verse as, there's a certain realization, there's a, there's a dawning that comes upon her here. Then a realization comes on her that she is like the chariots of a willing people. That is, that she belongs among those that are a willing people. And my suggestion to you, beloved, is that this, this realization, first of all, makes us reflect on Christ's work, not ours. It makes us reflect on Christ's work, not ours. What she realizes as she's examining the fruit of her own life, she's looking for life, and it's, it's like something dawns upon her why am I looking for life in myself? Christ is the source of life. Christ is the place where life is found. Christ is the one that we turn to. And so what, what happens here is a dawning upon her mind where she, rather than looking for the ongoing work of her own life, she remembers the work of Christ for her. She's considering that initial work that has been done on her behalf. She goes to the one who provides life rather than looking for the evidence of life. Now let me just say as an aside, I'm not saying evidence of life is unimportant. There's a place for looking for. Do, do the fruits of, of Christ, the Christian life, do they exist? Do they exist in my heart? There's a place for that. There's a place for looking at Galatians 5 and saying love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, looking at those things and saying, 
do I exhibit that? I mean, am I, am I walking in the flesh or the spirit and discerning the, the tendency, the leaning? There, there's a place. However, however, you don't get power to live the Christian life by looking at what you're doing. You don't get power to produce fruit by examining and discerning whether that fruit exists. You get power by going to the source of life, by abiding in the vine, by keeping yourself in Christ. And there's a sense in which the way we grow is how life began in the first place. And how did it begin in the first place? Come on, Christian. How did it begin in the first place? You looked and you lived. You looked to Christ, didn't you? He didn't ask you to do anything except look to Him. He didn't ask you to contribute anything, just rest on Him. And that, that's the Christian life. It, it is, in a certain sense, it is an ongoing, resting in, leaning upon, continually looking to the source of life and power. So as she's there, morbidly inspecting the fruit of her own life, his vine flourishing, the pomegranates budding, am I bringing forth any fruit? She remembers the truth of Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. It's Christ's power that makes the people willing. It is Christ's power in his people that makes the difference. When you first learned that God is utterly and entirely sovereign in salvation, most of you may have had, or many of you may have had, this kind of dawning where you say, yes, that's, that's actually what happened. I wasn't seeking for him. So if I wasn't seeking for him, who was doing the seeking? Well, it must have been the shepherd. And he found the one that was lost. And when he hath found it, he put it on his shoulders rejoicing. He didn't even say, he didn't even say, here, follow me. He didn't even say, look, here's a leash, I'm going to put it around you, but you have to walk along beside me. No, he picks it up, places it on his shoulders. And the salvation is entirely accomplished by Christ, the saving of the sheep. It's all his work. And it is important for us to realize this. Very important. Someone was talking recently to me, making a comparison between this church and another church, and uh, they were reassuring me that the church that they are attending is a biblical church, and uh, they believe pretty much what we believe, and so on and so forth. Well, there are many good churches in this area. I don't doubt that whatsoever. But as I sometimes do, I will, I will check it out. I will look at the website and just see, well, really, you know, is it, is it a good church? I knew some things about this church, but I had no idea what their statement of faith would be, if they even have a statement of faith these days, which is almost a novelty in many churches. It's so brief that even the heretics could assent to it. There's nothing delineating and very particularly Christian about many statements of faith on church websites today. But anyway, I took a glance, and it was, it was thorough-ish, let's just say. It was thorough-ish. It wasn't the Westminster Confession of Faith. It wasn't the London Baptist Confession, 1689. It wasn't anything like that. 
but it was thorough-ish, let's just say. And they had regeneration. And I was, I'm just scanning through, come to regeneration. Here's what it, how it begins. When an individual responds in faith to the gospel, repents of his sin and turns to Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit causes a spiritual change in which he is freed from the guilt of his inherently sinful nature, receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and thus is born again into God's family. And I hope that from the opening lines there, those of you here for any length of time are immediately alarm bells. That's not what we, what we believe. When an individual responds of it, the onus is on the individual. The onus is on them first. First. If regeneration is going to take place, it must be what you do first. Your response to the gospel. This is not what we believe, men and women. It's not what we believe here. It's not. Regeneration is an act of God that precedes. And this is the thing that's conflating regeneration with conversion. Conversion is the expression of the fact regeneration has taken place. Conversion is faith and repentance, and you can see that. You see that expressed in prayer and, and, and confession of sin and so on. You see that. That's conversion. But the reason you see conversion, the reason you see faith and repentance, is because God has done a work. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But you must be born again. You must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus is struggling to conceive of all of this. Understand, art thou a master in Israel? No, it's not these things. You don't get it. But let me say, as I have said to others, as simple as this. You have as much, you contribute as much in your spiritual regeneration and you're being born again as you did in your first physical birth. So how much collaboration did you contribute when you were conceived? Nothing. That's what happens. That's what God does. So she, getting back to the text, is musing on this. I was made willing. Life is Christ's to give. Let me not spend all my life looking for evidence of life. Let me, let me not, like Martha, be cumbered with the care of constantly examining self. This morbid introspection. Is, is there life there? Is there life there? Is there life there? What are you doing? Go to the source of life. Do what Mary did. Sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word. Receive life. Receive his word. Receive his truth. And you can't not receive it and it not have an influence. It's impossible for you to sit and receive his word and feast on Christ and fruit not be produced. Abide in the vine. Abide in the vine. And you'll bring forth much fruit. So this realization makes us reflect on Christ's work, not ours. And it gets our minds off what we can do onto what Christ 
has done and continues to do. And also this realization makes us rely on Christ's power, not ours. So we're looking to Him for, for power, aren't we? If I'm just looking to myself and constantly looking in and trying to find the source of power, yes, there's fruit there. Oh, I, I must be a Christian, and therefore something by that inner look helps me to produce more power to live the Christian life? I mean, you, do, you see, do you see what I'm getting at, Christian? Do you see the danger here? It is utterly essential that the essence of your faith is expressed towards Christ, leaning upon Christ, looking to Christ, resting in Christ, feasting on Christ, hearing the word of Christ, obeying Him. And yes, it, it, it requires things of us. You know, to abide in Christ means that we, we keep His commandments. John 15 bears this out. Go and read it another time for yourself. So it's not just an idea. It's, abiding in Christ and looking to Him is not just an idea. It is active. But what Mary was doing, taking her for an example again, what Mary was doing was active, and that's what Martha didn't get. She's cumbered about with much serving but it wasn't that Mary was doing nothing. The Lord commends her because she's doing something. She's hearing His Word. She's at the feet of Jesus. And I'll tell you, our natural tendency is to be busy like Martha. I put all the weight there. As, as long as I'm busy, then I'm, I'm a good Christian. No, a good Christian, a real Christian, sits with Christ. So very quickly and finally, the liberation, the liberation, the final language of verse 13 seems to be a distinct person. What will you see in the Shilamite? As it were, a company of two harmonies. Another difficult text here. What do you see in her? The dance, musicians, that could be translated that way. Two camps rather than two armies. In fact, two armies is found the Hebrew underlining two armies is found in Genesis 32, verses 1 and 2, when Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. It's God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So, obviously in the original context, as is the case throughout the Song of Solomon, there's, there's something material going on. There, 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 there are things that are happening have physical significance. Like you could, if you were living in that time, you could more readily imagine what's going on. And whether this is some kind of celebration or feast or whatever it is, some kind of display that is in view, whatever it is, Christ here, it would appear to me and others, interjects when the world wants to look on when the third parties want to examine the Shulamite. He says, what will you see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of two armies. And I don't know precisely how to understand that language except to say that he is interjecting. And in that sense, I can conclude this. He is protecting. He is protecting her from the scrutiny of a watching world, of the judgment, maybe even of those in the professing 
church. Some see the two armies as the flesh and the spirit and the battle that is the, they're going running with different ideas here that I, I'm not sure I can run with. But nonetheless, Christ is interjecting. And the reason he interjects in the life of his people in this context is to liberate them. Isn't it? Liberate them. Liberate them from the, the watching world with all of its criticism. And liberate them from even the examination of self that may lead to despair. What will you see in the Shulamite? Maybe you see God's host. Maybe that is. You're, that's what you're meant to see. You're meant to see she, she belongs among. Or maybe it's in the sense of the God's host as the, as the angels. And so you, are you expecting them to see as an angel? I, I don't know. I, as I say, there are all sorts of ways you can take this. And I, I just can't. I, I don't know. I, I freely, I don't know. But I do know this. If Christ is the one speaking... If the bridegroom is the one interjecting, he is doing so to protect. And Christ is the great protector of his people. He is the one who patiently keeps drawing them to himself because that's where they need to be. He is the one who keeps on encouraging you, Christian, to not lose sight of what he has provided for you. He is the great champion of his own work. He is the great witness of his own triumph. And he is the one who continually sends his spirit to bear witness to him and teach you the things concerning him and fill your mind with him and reassure your soul with him. The sins the past week do they, do, they, do they disqualify me? Christ comes and says, the blood, my blood, cleanses all sin. He is a great liberator. Maybe you're here this morning and you need a fresh realization that Christ has done it all. Make sure you take the bread and the cup to signify His liberating grace and the fact that He offers a full free pardon to you. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, Help us get our eyes off ourselves. Deliver us from a faulty introspection, a constant looking to self. Get our eyes on Christ, the author and the finisher, the alpha and the omega of the faith of thy people. Be with us around this table now, we ask in Jesus' name.